Because people, many people, watch sports events, Christians often attempt to present some kind of a gospel witness at these events. Perhaps you've seen the sign held up in the crowd, or posted on a wall. The sign has this short message, capital J, capital N, number three, semicolon, and then the number 16. Now, I don't know, I mean, I became a Christian when I was uh, 31. So I had those 20 years of my 20s where I could see that sign, and I did see that sign, and I really didn't have a clue what it was all about. But I did think about it. I wondered about it. And here, when people do this, the idea is that people either know or will find out the JN is shorthand for the Gospel of John. And that 3.16 means chapter 3, verse 16. I mean, I grew up not even knowing the difference between the Old and the New Testament. I, I, I knew there was a Bible, but I didn't know the difference between the two. And you take for granted, we think, I mean, you people have all been around probably scriptures a long time, and you just assume that everybody may know that, but they don't. And so in this case, the hope is that great things will happen if people will pick up their Bible and just read this one verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John 3.16 presents a message that cannot be known apart from the Bible. How does God feel about us? What has he done, if anything, to help us? There's no greater question and no more glorious answer than that that is given to us in John 3.16. John 3.16 is a summary of the gospel. Cast in terms of the love of God. Martin Luther called this verse the Bible, the Bible in miniature, John 3.16, because it contains the heart of God's entire message. And this is why John 3.16 is the greatest verse in the Bible. One writer summarizes John 3.16 as follows. Now, I'm going to go through this, this rather quickly, but you just get the essence. Don't try to write it down. Don't try to memorize it. Just get the essence of what this writer says. This is how he, how he explains John 3.16. God, the greatest lover, so loved the greatest degree, the world, the greatest company, that he gave the greatest act, his only son, the greatest gift, that whoever the greatest opportunity believes the greatest simplicity in him the greatest attraction and should not perish the greatest promise but the greatest difference have the greatest certainty eternal life the greatest possession and then with this one statement he says in him we have everlasting life 
I'm waiting for an amen. <laughs> There's got to be an amen out there. Another way to see the greatness of John 3.16 is to point out that it presents the Bible's greatest theme. God's love for us through Jesus Christ. Now John is not the only biblical writer to extol God's love. And we can profit from looking at some some of the uh, examples of how others have done the same thing. For example... In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, the Apostle Paul says that God's love is great. This is what it says. God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. That's almost a hallelujah verse. We see that God's love for the world is great and the amazing care he exercised in creating it. And nat- it, it. Nature itself reveals the marks of the most loving craftsmanship. The Greek word that Paul uses for great is used to describe an overflowing harvest of our intense emotions. God's love truly deserves to be called Very great. In Ephesians 3, chapter chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, Paul describes God's love as unfathomable. And he prays that believers may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. What what we are to comprehend about the dimensions of God's love is that they are beyond measure. You can't put God in a box, nor can you put his love on a scale. Now, it is, it is possible to exhaust the love of a spouse, the love of friends, or even the love of parents. But it is not possible to exhaust the love of God. Uh, Frederick M. Lehman wrote uh, these words from his hymn, The Love of God. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The love of God. God's love is joined to all his other attributes. A great mistake that many people make is to try to pit one of God's attributes against another attribute. Many of us prefer God's love. Who wouldn't prefer God's love to God's holiness? But we must never think that we must even or ever could choose between God's love 
of God's holiness. God's holiness is a loving holiness. God's love is a holy love. His love is joined to holy purposes. His love for us will have the ultimate result of bringing us to a glorious, holy condition. God is almighty, and therefore his is an almighty love. This means that he is able to do all that his love desires for us. J.I. Packer writes that God's love has at its heart an almighty purpose to bless which cannot be thwarted. Who then, who then can separate us from this love? Paul asks that question in Romans, and he states it in Romans 8.35. He says, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us. Because God is unchangeable, so also his love is unchangeable. You can't say that about us. Our love is not unchangeable. John Owen writes, Though we change every day, yet his love does not change. If anything in us or on our part could stop God loving us, then he would long ago have turned away from us. It's because his love is fixed and unchangeable that the Father shows us infinite patience and forbearance. If his love was not unchangeable, we would perish. God is eternal, and so is his love. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1-4. God's love for us originated in eternity past, and it, its end flows to eternity future. God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love, Jeremiah 31.3. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, Isaiah 54.10. Because God is sovereign, so is his love. Ephesians one. Verses 4 to 6 says, In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Finally, we should note that God's love is infinite. There's no greater proof of this idea than John's statement that God loved the world. There is an infinite difference between God and this world. But God's love is infinitely great to span that very difference. God tells us, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts, Isaiah 55, 9. But he still loves us. 
Paul notes that although he, they knew God, they did not honor God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, Romans 1.21, as he describes people in this world. That is an accurate description of our world today. The difference between us and God is infinite in every way, and yet God has loved the world. When John speaks of the the world in John 3.16, he is being intentionally provocative. Old Testament Jews believed that God loved them, but rejected the idea that God loved anyone else. One writer explains, it is a distinctively Christian idea that God's love is wide enough to embrace all people, all races, all ethnic backgrounds. His love is not, it is not confined to any one national group or some kind of spiritual elite. The same is true today. John, here in this passage, does not say that God loves religious people or that God loves Christians, but that God so loved the world. And this is why the message of Jesus Christ is good news for everyone. Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, the verse that we quoted at the beginning of the service, Christ died for us. He died for us while we were still sinners. Now this brings us to the particular point that John 3.16 stresses. God's love is a giving love. The Greek language has four words for love. The first is storge, S-T-O-R-G-E, which is family love. Whatever we think of each other, family members are to be loyal. The second word is eros, E-R-O-S, which is romantic or sexual love. The third kind of love is philos, P-H-I-L-O-S, which is a love of friendship or attraction. The word philosophy means a love of wisdom. This is a receiving love. It is based on what we get and how good something or someone makes us feel. But the New Testament stresses a fourth kind of love using the Greek word agape. This is a giving love. It is not based on what we receive, but on what we give. Agape love has its classical definition in John 3.16. For God so loved, what did he do? He gave. That's agape. The greatness of God's love for the world is most clearly seen in the gift that he gave. What was that gift? Jesus, 
his only son. John says not merely that God loved the world, but he God so loved the world. And that little word so indicates both the manner in which God loved the world by giving his son and the intensity of God's love for the world. How do we measure God's love for us? By calculating, by adding up the infinite value of his precious son, Jesus Christ. That's how much he loves us. John refers to Jesus as God's only son. And we are instructed to reflect on this truth in light of our love for our own children. Even though we are corrupted by sin, it is natural for us to love our children with great intensity. Jesus Christ is God the Father's only child. God many times spoke of his love for his son. And Jesus is often, often basked in the love of his father. So in giving his only son, God was truly giving his very heart. One writer asked this question. Who? Who would part with a son for the sake of his dearest friends? But God gave him and delivered him for enemies. Oh, love unspeakable, Miss writer says. God could not possibly love this world more or better than in giving his beloved son. When John says that God gave his son, exactly what does that mean? According to the Bible, the Father sent the eternal and glorious Son into this world to take our mortal nature with all our weaknesses and suffering that that involved. And Jesus states many times in John's Gospel that the Father sent him into the world with a mission of salvation to perform. God sent him to reveal his truth to proclaim the good news of salvation, and especially to do the work needed for salvation of those who believe. This means that when we read that God gave his Son, we should think of the cross, where Jesus suffered and died that we might be forgiven of our sins. So great is his love that if our redemption from sin required the torturous death of his only son, even the outpouring of his own wrath on his most beloved child, God was willing to give Jesus for this very purpose. We should never take this for granted. We should never just grow accustomed to this truth. We need to be reminded of it again and again and go back to square one and realize how blessed we are. I mean, I, I think there's a tendency in the church always to, we want to know something new, something different, something bigger, something better. Okay, fine, go do that. But don't forget this. This is the foundation. This is what the, the church is built on this. I need to remember that. 
One thing I never wanted to do as a pastor is become a professional Christian. I'm a professional. I do this for my, this is my livelihood. No, I don't want that. I want a relationship with Jesus. That's what I want. If he wants me to do this for him, then okay, I'll do it. But it's not a job. It's a calling. It's a relationship. It's a commission. That's one of the things I've loved about retirement. Is it's allowed me to fall in love with Jesus in a way that I never did before. I was too, I was too bogged down with all the stuff with ministry, you know? All the stuff you got to do that's related to the church. That's the problem. I hate to say it, but we make an idol out of the church. And the church is very important. It's the body of Christ. But Jesus comes first. I mean, I don't know about you, but I've been in congregational meetings where I have wondered if the Holy Spirit had any business there. I mean, it wasn't even present. Uh, and yet I've been in a prayer meeting with two people and sensed the Spirit working in a mighty way. So it's not about numbers. It's about our heart. It's about our soul. It's about our spirit. I'm not putting down congregational meetings. I've had some very blessed ones, and I think they're wonderful, and you need to have them. But uh, sometimes we put the cart before the horse, and that's when we get in trouble. God's gift, therefore, was not only infinite in value, but also perfectly suited to our greatest need. Let's all say it together. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Amen. Now we might prefer that God would do something other than send his son to be our savior. But God's love addresses our true and greatest need. Whenever the New Testament speaks of God's love, it almost always does so in terms of his atoning work of Christ on the cross. And John 3.16 is a typical example. In the previous two verses to John 3.16, Jesus told Nicodemus, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This was an allusion to his death on the cross. This is how the world knows God's love. And this is how the world receives God's love. Not because we are able to love one another, even though that's very important, Not because there is beauty in the world, which there is, but because God sent Jesus to die for our sin. That's it, in a nutshell. So let's conclude our study of John 3.16 with three things, three observations. And I'm just going to read these because they're rather intense and I couldn't memorize them, that's for sure, so... Just listen, and you're not going to get every word. 
You don't have to write them all down. Just listen for in each one, and I'll tell you, this is the first one and the second one and the third one. If there's one thought in there that you want to kind of grab hold of and then think about maybe in the future. So first, John 3.16 shows us the exceeding preciousness of our souls, your soul and my soul. And at what high price God values them, that he will give his son, his only son, out of his bosom as a ransom for our souls. Surely, this argues, God having given his only son for the saving of souls, that we ought to labor with all our might to bring people to salvation. It doesn't happen by osmosis. Somebody needs to share the word with them or make the word available to them. I mean, I can't tell you the number of times before I was a believer in the little village of Osterville that a particular man invited me to go to his church. Week after week, every time I'd see him in the coffee shop, John, what about coming to church? And I, I wasn't a believer then, and I wasn't interested. But then he'd hand me a track and say, well, would you please read this track? And I said, okay, I'll take it. And I put it in my pocket, and sometimes I'd read it, and sometimes I didn't. But when the time came, and I came under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, I knew that he was someone I could go talk to. And I did. And he referred me to his pastor, and between the two of them, I became a Christian. His witness and the pastor's time with me and making that commitment. But it didn't happen in a vacuum. It happened in places like the coffee shop. It happened in different places where this man happened to work in the post office in Osterville, and so he didn't see me there. But he never gave up. I'm talking about a 10-year period of time. He had three sons, the same age as me and my two brothers. And so, you know, the families knew each other. And his sons, you know, they, they weren't as spiritual as you might have hoped them to be, but they had been brought up in the church. And I'm not sure any of them ever really took hold. But here I was, an outsider, and his father never gave up on me. And, and I remember praying with him and him praying for me. He prayed for me even before I was a believer. I... That was an unbelievable experience for me to sit in my car. I, I gave him a ride from the post office to where he lived one day, and uh, he said, John, would you mind if I prayed for you? And I said, what am I going to say, no? No, I said, okay. I closed my eyes, he closed his eyes, and he prayed. I was so touched. I, I never had anybody pray for me like that. My name, telling Jesus about John McPherson, I mean, it was like, I was, it was an unbelievable experience. And so, well, the day I... The day I was born again, uh, election day, 1972, November 7th, late in the day, I, I waited outside the post office to pick him up, because he didn't have a license, he didn't have a car. And I said, I said I'm going to give you a ride home. He said, okay. And uh, I said, I got something to tell you. And he says, I know all about it. I said, what? <laughs> the pastor had stopped in the post office to tell him <laughs> that I had accepted the law. <laughs> That's great. I didn't mind, because those were the two men who had witnessed to me for ten years. Ten years. So it's through our witness that they can believe. It's because we take an interest in their souls. 
because we speak earnestly to them about Jesus and because we invite them to join us at church and to hear God's word that souls are saved. Now, in my ministry in Dighton, I, I could go back and look at my little black book that I keep, but I would venture to say that I led, oh, I don't know, 75 people to the Lord. Uh, but of those 75, I don't know. I don't know how many of them were real. Some of them I really believe were, but there were some that sort of drifted off. But that's okay. At least I did what I was called to do. And, and it was a blessing. I mean, I, it was several times that I had the privilege of leading someone to Christ. And it, was the, it was the most important thing I did for that whole month. But it was just between me and that person. I didn't go running around telling everybody about it. It was just me and that person. And I told them, you need to share this fact with other people. Even here at the church, if you do, and the, some of these people didn't even come to the church, so um, it's a glorious thing. It's like being in uh, the uh, what's the part of the hospital where they deliver babies? I mean, you know how it is when a baby shows up. Wow! Well, that's what it's like when you see a person go from death to life, spiritually speaking, and you've been used in a, as an instrument of God, and it's the Holy Spirit that does it all, and God's word, the power of His word. But you're also an instrument. You're a, a conduit that uh, God uses. Second, since God has given us his son, we may be confident of receiving every other help and mercy we need to endure this life and arrive safely into heaven. Knowing this should give us peace in every storm and confidence in the face of life's trials. Knowing how much God has already given us his very best in the person of his own son, we should trust his love and come to him with a holy boldness in prayer. Paul reasoned this way in Romans 8.32. He, God, who did not spare his son, Jesus, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things that are necessary and good for us? God knows what those things are. God will not hold, withhold anything we need, having already given his son, Jesus. And so we should not shrink back from asking for or confidently awaiting anything we truly need. Third, and finally, and I will have a few more comments after this, and then we'll close. If the greatest love has been manifested in giving Christ to the world, then it follows the greatest evil and the greatest wickedness is manifested in despising, slighting, or rejecting Jesus Christ. There can be no greater condemnation of our hearts than for us to disregard this amazing love of God in giving his Son to suffer in our place. What does God ask or expect of us? God demands what love always desires just to be received. Jesus said in John 6, 29, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Just receive the message. Just receive the Savior. John 3:16's message is that God calls us to believe on Jesus Christ, to receive his love gift through personal faith in Christ. If we believe, truly believe, he promises us eternal life. But if we are so hardened of heart 
to refuse this matchless gift from heaven, John warns the result will be that will be will be to perish. Having spurned God's love on the cross, we must receive the just penalty for all our sins, and especially for the chief sin of rejecting God's only Son. As the writer of Hebrews warns us, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? There's one last application for those who believe in Christ and who are born again into eternal life. If God loved us by giving us his Son, we ought to love him with all that we have in return. In my study for today's sermon, I came across this story. It may be familiar to you, I don't know, but I'd like to share it. Shortly after the end of the American Civil War, a man in farm clothes was seen kneeling at a gravestone in a soldier's cemetery in Nashville. An observer came up and asked, Is that grave the grave of your son? And the farmer replied, No. No, it's not. I have seven children, all of them young, and my wife on my poor farm back in Illinois. I was drafted, and despite the great hardship it would cause, I was required to join the army. But on the morning I was to depart, this man, my neighbor's oldest son, came over and offered to take my place in the Civil War. And so the observer solemnly asked, What is that you're writing on his grave? And the farmer replied, I am writing, He died for me. With that same devotion, we should love God for his love in giving Jesus Christ to die for us. Like the farmer in the story, we should make an effort to serve the Lord and give a testimony to his love. We should further express our devotion by loving others with the same kind of love that God has shown to us. We have to show a love that the world does not know. A love not based on getting. Not one that seeks mainly for ourselves, but a love that says, God has given to me, so I want to live, love him by giving to others. This giving love should beautify our marriages. This giving love should enliven our friendships. This giving love should glorify God in this very church. This was John's own application in his first epistle. Having spoken about God's love for us in giving his son, he writes this in verse, 1 John 4.11. Beloved, isn't it great to be called beloved by the Apostle John? Beloved, if God so loved us, we also are to love one another. If we live out God's amazing, giving love, that will be our strongest testimony to a loveless world so that others will learn of God's amazing love from us and that by believing in him, they too will have eternal life. Let us pray.
gracious, loving, merciful God, our Heavenly Father. The greatness of your love is measured in terms of its unsearchable riches as well as in terms of its unimaginable reach. The world spoken of in John 3.16 is the rebellious world of your image bearers, members of the human race. You loved rebels. You loved fools. You loved idolaters so much that you, you gave your one and only Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, to redeem them. And you did this to actually purchase, to actually purchase a pan-national, transgenerational family for yourself. Everyone you, our Heavenly Father, give to your Son, Jesus Christ, will be saved. There is no other way. There is no greater love. Eternal life is a quality of life before it is a quantity of life. Eternal life is defined in your word as knowing you and knowing your Son. It is a sharing of the life and the intimacy of the Godhead. It is earthly entry into the everlasting and ever-blessed life of the age to come, the age of Messiah, the fullness of covenant life. Through your Son and our Savior Jesus Christ, this promised age has arrived. And at the moment of our rebirth, we are ushered into the initial stages of that eternal life. Indeed, the change in our status from deservedly condemned sinners to perfectly justified believer is instantaneous and it is complete. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Praise the Lord. What a salvation. All because of the love of God. Amen.